Hello, welcome and Merry Christmas. This is a British Food History Podcast and I am your host, Dr. Neil Butchery, food historian and chef. I'm very glad to be back for a seventh season of the podcast. I see that there's quite a few new followers and listeners, so thank you very much for joining our little crew. You're most welcome. Come on in, come out of the cold. It's nippy out there. I've already recorded some great conversations and I've got a few more lined up still to do. It's a varied batch, that's for sure. And I hope you enjoyed last week's bonus special episode in conjunction with the Delicious Legacy podcast. I accidentally uploaded the episode without an introduction till Thomas, the host of Delicious Legacy, pointed it out to me. So if you listened or downloaded in that first 24 hours or so of it coming out, re-listen, stroke, re-download, and the whole thing will make much more sense. I highly recommend to check out the Delicious Legacy podcast. There's some excellent previous episodes and lots there to interest you, I'm sure. Thomas's most recent episode about sausages is very good. So how have you been? I hope all is good with you. I've been away for three months. I haven't had my feet up in that time. I've written a few blog posts since then. So go and check out the blog, BritishFoodHistory.com. Of those recipes, one is relevant for Christmas time, and it's a recipe for roast haunch of venison. Just in case you're having it for Christmas dinner, or you've not yet decided what meat you're having for Christmas dinner, there's some cooking tips there. I also wrote some articles for Country Life magazine, and you can find those on the admin page of the website. My big news really is that A Dark History of Sugar won the Best First Book Award at the Guild of Food Writers Awards earlier this year. It was very exciting. There were Dames Delia Smith and Mary Berry. I did not expect to win. It was all very swish. A huge thank you to listeners and readers of the blogs who have donated virtual coffees and pints or signed up to a £3 monthly subscription. It's really appreciated especially during these last few months where I've not been putting out as much material. I'm very, very grateful. If you don't know about the subscriptions and the different ways to support the blogs and podcasts, I'm going to mention more of that at the end of the episode. Let's get started with Season 7 proper. But there's one heads up. (laughs) Now, I was going to wait until current deadlines were met before I started making more episodes, but that is April and I thought that is too long to wait for new episodes. So I'm fitting them in between getting books written, as well as the project that I'm doing with the Museum of Royal Worcester. I'm going to tell you more about that on a future episode. But this might mean that episodes may come out a little erratically. But I'm sure you'll agree it's better than waiting until April for more stuff to come out. So, Christmas spesh. It's mince pies this year a source of much confusion for folk outside of the UK. There's no guest this week, it's just going to be me talking to you about mince pies, the history behind them, but I'm also going to be doing some of my cooking spots, a style of episode that I haven't done in ages and I really like doing them. And I had a bit of a cold when I was recording the baking bits, hence why I sound a little bit weird at times. Also before we start, a big thank you to Ivan Day, the great food historian and friend of the show, of course, 
for his help and advice regarding today's episode. Incidentally, I went on a historical pie-making course run by Ivan earlier this year, and it's really got me back into the kitchen with renewed enthusiasm. He does a pie course twice a year, and I've left details in the show notes. But anyway, let's begin. Christmas special 2023 Mince Pies. Mince pies are a key element of Christmas in the United Kingdom. They haven't broken out yet to infiltrate the rest of the year, unlike hot cross buns. Now, if you've listened to my episode on hot cross buns all the way back in season one, you'll know that I don't like the fact that hot cross buns are sold throughout the year. But I do think that mince pies should be eaten outside of the Christmas period. And in fact, they were at one point. All the time. They've just become associated with Christmas more recently. Comparatively recently, anyway. And I am on a personal mission to get them back on the menu for the rest of the year. I am also on a mission to reintroduce the meat and other animal products that are now missed out, sadly, of today's mincemeats. They've got a long history, and whilst they do resemble, well, pies, there have been fashions, let's say, over the centuries. I would say the older fillings are nicer, they're less sugary and less sickly, they're easier to make because most of them anyway don't even need cooking beforehand. But before I go any further, let me just answer the question, what is a mince pie? Because there's a certain amount of confusion about what a mince pie is and what the mincemeat is that goes in a mince pie. One of the issues is that the mincemeat that goes in the mince pie contains no meat and nothing is minced. A typical mince pie, say one bought from a supermarket, is a sweet pie made with a sweet short crust pastry, sometimes puff pastry. Inside are the ingredients and flavours we, here in the UK anyway, associate with Christmas. Dried fruit, lots of it, candied peel, warming sweet spices like nutmeg, some booze, brandy's a typical one. There's some brown sugar in there. There should be some apple, and there may be some suet. And if it is there, in the bought varieties, it'll be vegetable suet, which is a bit of a misnomer, but I'll get onto that. One thing for certain, though, is that there's no meat. And it's a shame, because meat and suet provide a real succulence. It might sound weird, but it isn't, trust me. I've sold meaty mince pies on my little artisan market stall back in the day, and they were very popular, especially made with sweet shortcut pastry made with both butter and lard. I've made them with both beef and lamb in the past, and I got into the kitchen to make a Northumbrian lamb mincemeat recipe. It's the most traditional recipe I've ever done, i.e. I've kept uh, as much as I can the traditional ingredients and prepared them in the way that they would have been And that is all down to the word mince. It's very much the operative word. Let's see how I got on. It's been a while since I've done a little cooking spot, isn't it? I'm making a sweet lamb pie. In my bowl already are things that either don't need mincing or have come pre-minced. I've got some dried fruit in the form of currants, raisins, sultanas. I've got some candied chopped peel and I have got brown sugar. So they're all in. I want us to focus on the word mince for a minute. Now, I've done a lot of mincing in my time. The old meaning of mince was just chopped. So old recipes might ask you to mince an onion. It doesn't mean put it through a mincing machine. It means chop it. 
Mincing machines came around in, I think, the late 19th century. They're responsible for a lot of terrible food in this country because people really don't use them as they should and all sorts of horrible stuff goes through a mincing machine and you get things that shouldn't be in there. I remember in the 1980s getting sausages with horrible grisly bits in it, burgers with grisly bits in it because they've been putting through sinew, shin of beef. Nothing wrong with a shin of beef, but it shouldn't be appearing in a burger because it needs long, slow cooking. In America, of course, you don't buy minced beef, you buy ground beef, which makes much more sense because a mincing machine doesn't chop anything, it kind of pulverizes it. So ground beef or grinding meat is a much more accurate word, I think. But anytime you see the word mince, pre-1900, it essentially means chopped. Let's have a look at our other ingredients. I've got some almonds, which, of course, I need to mince, i.e. chop. I mean, you could see why people wanted a machine to speed up this slightly boring job. Anyway, that's enough mincing for the almonds. And now I need to get hold of the, well, I suppose unexpected thing to be in minced meat, even though it's called minced meat, some actual meat. And as I mentioned before, for this Westmoreland sweet pie, we have lamb in it. Of course, lamb country in Westmoreland. So I've got my lamb soup from the butcher. Like I said, gave me it for free. It's given me too much. I need, going by the old recipes, somewhere in the region of 200 grams. I'm just gonna weigh what I've got. So I've actually got 500 grams there, so just over a pound in old money. However, not all of this is gonna be usable. There's gonna be bits of sinew, bits of uh, vein and things like that. So we don't want those bits in. So I'm gonna dig in and listen, you can, you can pull it apart and as you pull it apart, you see there's a membrane around it. That's what you can hear pulling away from the fat, a thin membrane, almost like cling film, AKA saran wrap in America. So I'm just gonna do this, talk amongst yourselves as I get nice bits of good, firm, flaky fat. Suet is usually quite a inert fat. Now I wrote a post ages ago about suet, the different forms of suet and how to prepare it and cook with it. I'll leave that in the show notes for you. Beef suet is the usual one. And the reason that that's preferred is it enriches things but it sort of melts away and doesn't have a very dominant flavor. But lamb suet has a definite lamminess to it. So that's why I really wanted to use the lamb fat. So that actually didn't take very long at all. Did it as I was yakking. This now needs mincing, chopping. To some degree, you can do it with your hands. Like I say, it should be flaky. If it's fat that's kind of squidgy and stretchy and hard to cut, then you haven't got suet. You've just got regular fat. As you're doing it, keep an eye out for little bits of connective tissue, little little blood vessels. I know it's gross thinking about this from an anatomical point of view, but nevertheless. So always good to keep an eagle eye out. You don't want a guest to be chewing onto something that's grisly or membrane-like, do you? It's amazing how flaky it is. You know, it doesn't stick to the knife or, or anything. So it's done, time for the lamb. This is a casserole lamb. It's already been diced, but it's quite big dice. So I'm going to chop them, chop the dice up a little bit more, fairly finely. Anyway, I'm just going to do this. It's fairly boring, so I'll be back with you once it's done. That's my meat minced, i.e. chopped. And now it's a return to some more familiar ingredients. Oh, by the way, 
I've used lamb here. Traditionally, it was mutton. And also, I've seen some recipes where beef has been used. So if you can't get hold of lamb or mutton or you don't like it, you can use beef if you like. You could, of course, miss out the beef altogether. And you could use a vegetarian form of suet and make a vegetarian version, of course. Two things, actually, that you don't find in mince pies today. Salt and pepper. We are blurring the sweet and the savoury. Good grind of pepper. I'm now going to add one teaspoon ground cinnamon. This is not quite a few spices. Most traditional mince pie recipes just have nutmeg being a fairly cheap spice. Going back to the uh, 19th or even 18th centuries, people could usually afford nutmeg. And I have also got some mace. A much underused spice these days, if you ask me. Teaspoon of that as well. And now some liquids. I've pulled out my Rima. Juice of two oranges. I forgot to mention I'd put the zest of the two oranges in at the beginning. And last but not least, some rum. Now, Westmoreland, Cumberland was rum country. Traditionally in a mince meat recipe, you might use some brandy. But up north, really far north England, it was rum. That's because a lot of rum was imported on the Cumberland coast. So it's very much associated with rum. It's Cumberland and Westmoreland. I've got 120 mils of dark rum. So the only thing to do now is to mix it up with my hands. They're the best uh, mixers you have in the kitchen. And then I'm gonna sterilize my jars, 120 degrees for about 25 minutes. In the meantime, hopefully a lot of that rum will dissolve the sugar and start to absorb into the fruit and the meat. I can pot it and then come back to it in, well, I would say 10 days. I mean, you can use it straight away if you really have to, but I would say 10 days, minimum a week. Doesn't need cooking. All that acid from the lemon juice, the sugar and the booze keeps everything perfectly preserved. I forgot to mention one ingredient and that was some apple minced. So that's gone in two, one large apple. I've got me a nice big sort of serving spoon. I have a, a jar, one great big jar, and a very wide necked funnel, which is extremely useful when it comes to potting or preserving any kind of fruits, veg, anything like that. Well, it's just a case now of spooning all of this into the jar. It's very important when you're making these things to uh, make sure all the air is excluded. So when you've filled up a good layer of filling, give it a good press down with the back of your spoon or ladle or whatever you're using. I've made several mincemeats now that don't need cooking and they have not yet died. So I'm giving them the seal of approval. Although if you try to make this and then you're in the, you know, in the tropics, you know, I would maybe store this in the refrigerator. But I got good old cold damp Manchester. So I reckon I'll be fine. I shall return to the pies in a little while. I want to talk to you more about fillings. So we've seen that the Northumbrians used mutton or lamb. These pies were until quite recently made on pie plates. If you're not familiar with these, it's essentially a plate, could be a dinner plate, with edges that turn up slightly. Denby ware is often like that. You could also find pie plates made of enamel. 
as long as you've got a dinner plate that is uh, heat proof, oven proof, then you can use it to make a plate pie. But there was a whole world of mince pie shapes and fillings, and I'm gonna have a look at them with you right now. If you pick up any English cookery book from the 17th century, there will be recipes for mince pies. And they were often full of all sorts. So those ingredients that we've now come to expect, candied fruit, dried stone fruits, raisin spices, maybe brown sugar, expensive ingredients and some serious showing off. Now, folk turn their noses up a little bit at the thought of all this meat, spice and fruit and perhaps sugar together. But essentially it's the same as a North African tagine, meat, spices, dried fruit like apricots and prunes and a nice gravy. And there's nothing wrong with that, is there? It's delicious. This is a combination that goes right back to the Middle Ages, heavily influenced by the food cultures of the then medieval Islamic empire. We're going to have a little look at Exhibit A, The Accomplished Cook by Robert May. It's a very famous 17th century cookery book. It was originally published in 1660, but I'm looking at the 1685 edition. It's been published as a facsimile by Prospect Books, if you fancy getting hold of a copy. Let's have a look. Here we go. Now there's a fold-out section in the original, but it's just placed within the pages here, showing a variety of pie designs, lots of strange shapes, especially the, the custard tarts here. I remember when I first looked at these unusual shapes of tarts, that some of them look like the, the symmetrical designs of Tudor and Stuart Gardens, all nice and sort of symmetrical with beautiful interlinking shapes. I assume that these were the shapes you would cut out of your pastry lid before you put it on top, but no, it's the actual shape of the pies. I'm going to write a blog post to go with this episode. I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can have a look to see what I'm talking about. So here's another page, and this time it's got mince pies on it. Even more closely interlinking shapes. They really are beautiful, but there's also some ones that are round. They're cylindrical shapes, they're quite thin and tall. So You've got round mince pies, which are kind of all stacked up in a pyramid here on this picture. But yes, unusual. Here is a recipe. If you've got the edition too, it's on page 232, and it says to make mince pies or chewits of a leg of veal, neat's tongue, turkey or capon. So those were the meats that were going into mince pies at this point. Neat's tongue, cow's tongue in other words was a particular favourite, especially going on into the 18th century. But there's also recipes for mutton pies, beef pies, or pies minced in the French fashion, made of veal, pork or lamb, or any kind of venison, beef, poultry or fowl. So really any meat is going on there. There's some more pictures. These ones are perfectly round and symmetrical. They're not as, um, they're not as high as the other ones. And if you look at them, the circle of pastry on the top and the bottom is sticking out a little bit so it looks like a cotton reel but let's have a look at the mutton pie here so there's beef suet leg of mutton currants raisins prunes caraway seeds nutmeg pepper cloves mace lots of salt but apart from the lots of salt not that different there's no sugar there's nothing candied in here though but i would say pretty recognizable as a christmasy mince pie on the opposite page are some designs, more designs. Some are perfectly round and steep-sided. Some are the same but square. But there's some strange shapes that 
look almost heraldic. But there's recipes for different kinds of mince pies all dotted through. Now, because mince pies were enjoyed the whole year round, they were eaten during fasting days, during Lent. So quite often you would find recipes for minced pies with fish in it. And here I found uh, mince pies of sturgeon. So that is very posh. I mean, you don't get much posher than sturgeon now. You know, it's full on regal fish, that one. The pictures look a bit more clear here as well. And it looks like it might have been constructed by crimping the sides onto a round base, filled in with a lid crimped on top and a hole put in the centre for the steam to escape. We've got minced pies of carps and eels as well. And there's a salmon one. And then towards the back, there's the quite surprising um, receipt, which is called to make minced pies of eggs according to these forms. And it's these same cylindrical pies that I've been describing already. And it contains hard-boiled eggs. <laughs> but, you know, they must have been eaten. Whether they were enjoyed or not, well, that's a little bit different, I suppose. But it was, I suppose it was one way of eating a familiar food like a mince pie, eating all year round, on a fasting day when no meat was allowed. They probably put up with it. I've never had a fishy mince pie. I have eaten some Tudor salmon, salmon on croute, which had some candied ginger in it and dried fruit and butter and sugar. And that was very good. So I'm sure a sturgeon mince pie is delicious. Not sure about egg. One day, I am sure I will give the egg mince pie a go. But it's a great book and it's got some fantastic drawings to help. The sketches really, there's no precise templates or anything, but good. So now I know a little bit about what I'm aiming for. Okay, let's go a uh, hundred years into the future. Good old Elizabeth Raffled with the experienced English housekeeper, published 1769. Now, if you look at the back of her book, where she's got her directions for a grand table, if you look at her second course, you will see a plate of mince pies. So these were being eaten for her, her grand table, which was for a January celebration. I've always taken that to be Twelfth Night, the biggest celebration in the Christmas calendar. So this is an example of mince pies being eaten at Christmas. <laughs> now let's find a recipe. Here we go, a mince pie. And this has got a neat tongue that's been boiled and then chopped up. But this is almost a modern recipe now, tongues aside. Apples, raisins, there's sugar in there, there's spices and there's brandy. So the large amount of salt in the Robert May recipe was doing the preservation for us. Now we've got sugar and brandy doing the preservation for us. It's all cooked in a rich puff pastry. She says you can add some candied citron too if you like. Okay, final book. Mrs. Beaton's book of household management, 1861. She's got two recipes. She's got minced meat and she's got excellent minced meat. Her regular one is made with beef and beef suet and it is very good. I used to sell these on my little market stall back in the day when I was just getting my uh, food business off the ground. Her excellent minced meat is very lemony. It's got two boiled lemons in it that have been pulverized. And I'm fairly sure She's stolen that from Eliza Acton's book, Modern Cookery for Private Families. She stole a lot of recipes from Eliza Acton. 
But I just want to go back to Raffle for a minute because she's got other pies which are essentially mince pies, but they go by another name. I mentioned this in my book about Elizabeth Raffold. So yes, here we are, I've got sweet patties which are supposedly the forerunner to the Eccles cake. There is one ingredient that you wouldn't find in a modern day um, Eccles cake because the recipe begins with take the meat of a boiled calf's foot. <laughs> but it shows that it's got some chopped meat in it. It's got apples, an ounce of candied orange, all chopped small, minced small, nutmeg, all the other things you would expect. French brandy, currants. It's a mince pie, basically, but it's been rolled into some puff pastry. And then she says you can bake it or you can fry it. I would say that's technically a mince pie. Now, here's the big one. The bride's pie. I'm going to read it out for you. Boil two calf's feet, pick the meat from the bones and chop it very fine. Shred small one pound of beef suet and a pound of apples. Wash and pick one pound of currants very small. Dry them before the fire. Stone and chop a quarter of a pound of jar raisins. A quarter of an ounce of cinnamon. The same of mace and nutmeg. Two ounces of candied citron two ounces of candied lemon cut thin, a glass of brandy and one of champagne. Put them in a china dish with a rich puff paste over it. Roll another lid and cut it into leaves, flowers, figures and put a glass ring in it. Oh, that's nice. These bride's pies were very much on the way out. And in fact, this one's almost uh, just a, a symbolic pie because it used to be quite a substantial thing and it would be broken over the the bride's head after she and the groom had got wed it was good luck but elizabeth raffled popularized probably invented the wedding cake which has got lots of dried fruit in it like a mince pie but it's in cake form and double wrapped in its marzipan and royal icing coats and Something I've talked about before on the podcast with Alessandra Pino. And of course, there's the book too, all about it, if you want to find out more. Now, Robert May has got one of these two, and it is nuts. Let me just find it. Here we go. Now, this is what he calls his bride pie. It's got a long title. It says, to make an extraordinary pie or a bride pie of several compounds being several distinct pies on one bottom. Mm-hmm. It seems to be the culinary equivalent of packing everything but the kitchen sink in there. And it looks like it would be like a Aztec temple in shape. The way it sort of st staggers up, getting smaller and smaller to a peak, but it's flower shapes rather than squares. And the first part is the bride's pie itself. And inside it, it has cock stones, in other words, cockles testicles with combs, or lambstones and sweetbreads of veal. There are two or three ox pallets, blanched and sliced, a pint of oysters, sliced dates, a handful of pine kernels, some broom buds that have been pickled, some uh, interlarded bacon sliced, nine or ten chestnuts roasted and blanched, seasoned with salt, nutmeg, and some large mace, and close it up with some butter. Then it's got a caudal poured into it, which is like a custard, that's been made with butter, the yolks of eggs, some white or claret wine, barberries. So I think you'll agree that there are mince pies for really every occasion. If you could afford the ingredients, of course. Anyway, back to the kitchen now to actually assemble 
some mince pies. All right, now I have been rummaging through the cookery books and I have managed to find a really good example of some mince pie templates. The book is by Mr. Edward Kidder. Um, it's called Receipts of Pastry and Cookery for the Use of His Scholars, etc. And there's loads of great recipes in it, including recipes for mince pies. But if you scroll right to the end, there's some quite precise templates that I, well, I've taken and I've cut out. There's some great shapes. Some of them are really complicated. And I think because I'm a beginner, I'm going to go with the ones that look the simplest. So I've cut out, I've printed out and cut out one that sort of looks like a scepter, I suppose. I've got one that, if you hold it one way, it's a bit like um, a fleur-de-lis. The other way up, it looks like a posh moustache. And then I've got a sort of four-pointed flower with pointed petals on it, which looks quite nice. And one here, which I suppose is a star-shaped, but it's got kind of curved sides to it. And what I've done is, and I took some advice here from uh, Ivan Day, so thank you very much for this, Ivan. I, I rang him up and he was in Portugal. <laughs> but he was very nice and talked to me a little bit and gave me some, some uh, pointers on making these pies. And he said to cut them out and then use a bit of string to trace out how long the perimeter of these shapes are. And, uh, yeah, he reckons I can roll them out, cut them out, and then build up the sides. Now, this is the, th this is the thing that I'm worried about, building up the sides. I'm going to half make the pies tonight with one pastry that I've made. And it appears in Jane Grigson's English Food for um, gooseberry pie. And the reason I've chosen that is you can mould them quite well and build up quite st steep sides, which are pretty stable. Now, I've changed the recipe a bit. I've rubbed in the butter into the flour, like you normally do with pastry. I've put a bit of salt in. And then I've taken the lard and melted that with some water and put that in, poured it in. And I've got kind of a nice waxy ball of pastry. I've covered it up, waited for it to get cold, and now I'm going to have a go. I have rolled out my pastry. It's two or three millimetres thick. Thickness of a pound coin. People always say that, don't they? I've cut out six shapes. I've also rolled out some strips. Strips of pastry, 35 to 40 centimetres long. If you can get your hands on, and they're not very expensive to buy on eBay and other websites, you can get antique jiggers, which are these, if you listen, little um, bronze devices with a little wheel where you can cut things out. Now, I didn't use these to do the cutting out. I actually used a paring knife to cut out the shapes and then to cut out the strips where you can actually buy jiggers. These are modern ones now where there's five or sometimes seven wheels all interconnected. So you can stretch them out and just do loads of strips all at once. So that's what I've done for those. So really what I need to do now is I need to try and attach my mince pie bases to the mince pie sides. Well, what should we do? Let's do a, let's try the flower first. What I've got to try and do is follow round the edges with a little bit of water to make it stick. This is where a bit of antique equipment comes in handy. Now I've got a little, little collection of these various jiggers and 
crimpers. So usually you've got your crimper wheel on one end and then some device on the other to help you attach pastry to pastry. So it might be to crimp a pastry lid, for example. These ones on here are little tweezers almost, like very flat tweezers. So what I should be able to do, hopefully, is go around pinching the two edges together. Now, I'm not going to be able to talk and do this at the same time, at least not without swearing. So I shall be back in a mo. Well, I'm going to continue with all of these now. Um, I'm going to leave them to cool in the refrigerator overnight. The reason I've used this pastry is because if you leave it somewhere very cold, of course it would be a pantry or a larder back in the day. Uh, but now I'm just going to keep it in the fridge. And what you'll find is, hopefully, that these really harden up. Okay, they've been in the fridge overnight and they have set very well. I'm quite impressed. I've already rolled out the lids. A couple of things I forgot to mention yesterday was I added a couple of tablespoons of icing sugar to the pastry. Well, just to sweeten it up really and to hopefully get it a nice golden brown colour. And also, if you store the pastry that you want to roll out the next day, don't put it in the fridge because it'll go very hard like the pastry for these pies. Leave it outside somewhere cool, not so, you know, don't be leaving it on the radiator. Anyway, it's time to construct these things. I've got my lamb mince meat. It's been maturing. It's nice and moist. So now it's a question, really, of just constructing them. I'm going to fill them maybe two-thirds of the way up and then glue the lids on with a bit of water, put a hole in so it can steam in the oven and not explode. But before I put it in the oven, I'm going to let it set again in the fridge for about 20 minutes. So that's the plan. I think my mincing could have been finer. It's a bit tricky getting some of the mincemeat into the nooks and crannies of these unusual shapes. But anyway, I will continue. Soldier on like a trooper. I'm only fitting maybe a couple of teaspoons of mincemeat in each one. It's not a huge amount. It's a, it's a mistake people make as they put way too much of the filling in. It all begins to swell up in the oven, the lids pop off. So hopefully I'll avoid doing that, but easier said than done. I'm gonna stop talking now and just get this finished. They are nicely filled. Now it's a case of putting the lids on. So I'm gonna brush around the top. So I'm just gonna pop them on and just pinch them with my fingers. Okay, that looks all right. Okay, well, I'm just going to continue doing these. I'll take a picture, of course. They're all done. I'm just going to pop a little hole in each one, steam hole. And they're going to go in the fridge for 30 minutes. Right there in the oven, I've put them in at 200. I'm going to see what they're like after 15 minutes. Then I'm going to turn down the temperature to maybe 175 for another 10 minutes, I would say. They're not that big. I have the little early 18th century shaped pies here. I must say, I'm very pleased with the fact that they did not collapse. I was worried that maybe putting some sugar in might make them too soft as they were cooking, but no, they've, they've stayed up. I am actually pretty pleased with them. I think some of them look great. One of the fleur de lis looks more like some kind of mutant elephant. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna break into it. Crispy pastry, good start. 
let's find out. That pastry is very good, even if I do say so myself. Sorry for the clacky mouth. Well, they're not as sweet as normal mince pies. There's a definite laminess in there. I didn't manage to get much filling in the pies. Now, maybe that's because my pastry was too thick. I think next time I'm going to try and make some really big ones. Because I think, because of all the weird shapes, you couldn't get mince meat into all the little nooks and crannies properly. Luckily, the pastry's good. It's good to know that I can manipulate the dough next time I make some. And I will be making some. And I'll be making them when it's not Christmas. So there we go, that's my version of the history of mince pies for you. By the time we roll into the 20th century, they've become the familiar ones of today. In the 1970s, Fanny Craddock wanted us to go back to the large mince pies. And, well, I'm with her. So don't forget to check out the blog after listening today, because there will be a post appearing there, giving you the recipe for that lamb filling and a method to make and bake the plate pie. Then, a couple of days after that, I'm not sure how many days, there will be a walkthrough of how I made the shaped pies. And there'll be pics on the social media, of course, as well. Then, after that, there'll be my annual boozy Christmas recipe appearing. Expect that on, hmm, fingers crossed, Christmas Eve. And if you want more Christmas content from the podcast, there are previous episodes. There was last year's Christmas Feasting with Annie Gray and Hogmanay with Paula McIntyre and the Christmas special from the year before that, all about Christmas pudding. As usual, links to everything I've mentioned in the episode will be in the show notes. And there's links to podcast episodes I've guested on since I've been away. Most recently, it was the Full English podcast. It was their Christmas special. And I was on there to talk about, well, the history behind a whole range of different Christmas foods. And I was also on the Shack Bagley podcast. Try saying that after you've had a few pints. Talking about the enigma that is Mrs. Elizabeth Raffold. Two talks I gave recently are also available to watch online if you're interested. One was the talk I gave on A Dark History of Sugar. That's now on YouTube. I now have a YouTube channel. There's only, at the moment, I think, three videos on there. But links to that in the show notes. Also, I gave a talk in conjunction with Museum of Royal Worcester. It was about how mealtimes changed in the 18th and 19th centuries, and I suppose how Worcester porcelain responded to those changes. Really fun talk to do, so I'm going to leave a link to that as well. Now, those who have been listening to the podcast for a while will know that at the end of the season, there'll be a post-bag edition, and this season, it will be no different. So, if you've got any comments, questions or queries regarding anything you've heard from this episode, or any episode so far please get in contact. Email me, neil at britishfoodhistory.com or leave a comment beneath a post or send me a DM on social media. I'm on Twitter. I am refusing to call it X, at Neil Buttery. I'm on Instagram and threads as doctor, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. And I'm now on Blue Sky, so if you're on Blue Sky 2, find me there. My handle is at Neil Buttery 
bsky.social. You can also post on the British Food and History Facebook discussion page, which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. If you haven't already, please rate, follow or write a review wherever you get your podcasts. It will get the podcast up the charts and it will make it more likely to appear in folks' logarithms and all that jazz. If you would like to support the podcast further and contribute to the upkeep of the podcast and the blogs by donating a virtual coffee or virtual pint, please visit the website, britishfoodhistory.com and go to the support the blog and podcast tab. On that same page, you can become a £3 monthly subscriber where you will get access to premium blog content, a monthly newsletter, emailed straight into your inbox, and my Easter eggs. Now there's two Easter eggs this week. The first is an extended description of Robert May's extraordinary pie. It's even more extraordinary, as it turns out. And the other is my talk and walkthrough of making the plate pie the way the lamb filling would have been baked in Westmoreland. And don't forget my books, the now award-winning A Dark History of Sugar and my biography of Elizabeth Raffold before Mrs. Beaton, both of which are published by Pen and Sword History and available from all good bookshops everywhere. So, off I must go. Have a great Christmas, a fantastic new year. Take care, get some relaxing in. Don't worry about all of the cooking, it'll be fine. The next episode is going to be on January the 5th or thereabouts. So I'll see you in 2024. Cheerio.